listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Um, a few weeks ago, Meldon said, uh, Pastor Meldon had said in his sermon that there is a grave danger, uh, a danger in attending a church like ours. A church uh, where there are many people who prioritize God's word, come under God's word, who are disciples, who are following after him, experiencing life change. It is, it is a danger because often attending a church like ours uh, can feel like uh, you are in the know that you have found salvation by f- coming to this church. But the reality is uh, that is a scary and dangerous thought that by just being around God's people, you are one of God's people. It doesn't work that way. Uh, It's also a little nervous to be around a church that puts uh, God's word with such high authority that we would come under such very public submission because good theology and doctrine is very important and a very important value to cherish, but a, a wrong thing to make an idol in our lives. And often I have found in churches that make uh, theology and doctrine and the teaching of God's truth a priority, I have found that there have been long-winded preachers and there have been uh, long discussions at study groups. And what they can lead into is they can lead into a lot of talk, a lot of talk. Um, I'm sure immediately you can think of someone who is a long-winded person. Don't point at me. Um, but if you can think of someone, then you, it's probably common. And if you can't think of someone, you probably are that person who's very long-winded. Um, but the reality is that we often make an idol out of discussion, talk, and controversy. And today we're going to look at a passage that, uh, and, and a, an epistle, a letter to Titus. And we're going to read about what happens to our lives as individuals, but what happens to the church When we make controversy, talk, and discussion, opinion, when we make that an idol. So turn with me to Titus chapter 1, verse 16. This is the center of the whole epistle. This is a a, a good um, demonstration of what this epistle is about. And it says this in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Let may it not be said of us that we are like this. But a quick, a quick glance at this, and probably the word hypocrisy comes to your mind, right? They're saying one thing and doing another. They're saying they know God, but in the way they live, it's denying him by their works. But it's, it, and it's good for us to know that this is hypocrisy, but what type of hypocrisy? What led to this hypocrisy? Why was this so rampant in this church on the island of Crete? And, and what do we do about this? And is this even relevant to our lives? I mean, very few of us wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and go, there's a good looking hypocrite today. <laughs> the reality is we don't like to consider ourselves hypocrites. And so we're going to look at God's word and see what a hypocrite is. We're going to see what happened to this uh, church on the island of Crete. And we're going to see what God's word has to say uh, to them and also even to us in the church in North America. It's important for us to understand a little bit of the context about what's happening in Crete. Crete is a little island just south of Greece. um, And uh, you'll see it there um, uh, that if, if you were traveling, you would often stop on the island of Crete if you were taking boat. Um, In fact, one time, uh, Paul was traveling from Palestine, from Jerusalem to Rome under house arrest. And that's actually the situation we're talking about today is that Paul in his travel 
left Titus on the island of Crete, not by accident, but on purpose. And when he left Crete on his way to Italy, he actually was shipwrecked. Um, the people of Crete didn't have the best of reputations. Uh, if you would look in your Bibles at uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, this is what it says. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, if that isn't a resume you want, I don't know what kind of resume you do want. The reality is they were not known as being uh, very kind people. They were known as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. When I read this, immediately what came to mind, thinking about an island, and maybe I've watched too many Disney movies, but I immediately thought of the island of Tortuga with the pirates, right? And I was thinking, it's not the kind of place where you necessarily want to visit. It's a place where you don't necessarily trust anyone, and... Uh, you avoid certain places. But it's, it's, it's important for us to understand this because this is the culture that this church was planted in. This is the culture that was breathing into uh, how the church was to be practicing. And even more interesting is actually the person who said this saying, this, the, the man who said Cretans are always liars, the one that Paul is quoting is this, uh, this philosopher here, Epimenides. Um, he didn't take a lot of selfies. That was the best picture I could get of him. Uh, but Epimenides was actually kind of famous on the island of Crete. He was well-known. He was legendary, if not mythological, in, in the way that they spoke about him. Epimenides was this philosopher of great influence, and he, it was said that he had incredible ability in terms of, uh, like, he was a smart man and a philosopher. He was able to heal people, um, and he had this incredibly long life, apparently. Apparently, he lived for 300 years. Epimenides... Some of you are like, that would be cool. Um, Epimenides was actually around about 500 years before Christ. And so he had already made his influence on Crete culture. And Epimenides had this uh, apparent, they attributed to him, a, a, I would call it a superpower, but like, you know, superhuman ability. And the superhuman ability that they attributed to Epimenides was the superhuman ability of, of being lethargic. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a little boy in school, uh, it was probably just a week ago I was talking about this, but um, what type of superpower would you want, right? Flight, super strength, invisibility maybe, or something like that. No, not the power of lethargic, being lazy and sleepy. And I know that some of you are smiling thinking, I think my teenager has that superpower. Um, this was what Epimenides was known for. In fact, it said that he, uh, he had slept in a cave for 57 years, slept that whole time. And uh, being a father of a toddler and a newborn, I wouldn't mind 57 years of sleep myself. Uh, this was the person that was really well-known and really influential on the, on the people on the island of Crete. Even his actual philosophical contribution, that's actually what we're reading here. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That was what he was known for in philosophical circles. Because what it's called is it's called the liar's paradox. If, if you've studied any philosophy, it's, it's basically this. If a liar tells you they're a liar and they always lie, are they telling the truth? Huh? And you're like, oh, but it's a lie. No, but it's the truth, right? And you just go into this vicious. Out of all philosophical contributions that this guy could have made, this one perfectly depicts the kind of culture on the island of Crete. This lazy, like, this not, not that great of a contribution to philosophy. I'm not, I shouldn't really judge philosophy, I guess, but um, in my opinion, this is the kind of thing that someone who is known for being lazy and sleeping around comes up with. And this is what 
influence the church. And we see it. We see it in this passage. Just look at uh, chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Titus is told, go to the island of Crete and tell them to stop talking. <laughs> okay? Verse, uh, go to chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then in verse 9, again, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and they're worthless. This is what the people of Crete were known for, spending a lot of time talking, trying to solve all the problems of the world. Yet what we realize is this, is that as they made an idol of opinion and talk and controversies, they actually had their own personal lives were a complete mess. They were all talk and no walk. They had something to say about everybody else's problems, but they were blind to their own. Complete hypocrites. Look, look at chapter 2, verse 2. I'm just going to quickly walk through what Paul sent, to, uh, sent Titus to go and do and to teach them. And, he, and he's supposed to teach them how to behave, really. Older men are to be sober-minded. That word sober-minded isn't just about like thinking clearly. It's about drunkenness. Older men are to not get drunk. Dignified. Self-controlled. Sound in faith. Sound meaning um, not unhealthy. Not wavering. In their faith, in their love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Reverent meaning... They treat things as they are holy and sanctified. They are precious. They're not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. Apparently, it's not just the older men who are drunks and drinking. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Show, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Do you see that? In your teaching, show what? Show integrity. Because in theirs, it wasn't. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. These people were a mess. They were sitting around talking about genealogies and histories and the law and solving the problems of all the world around them. And Paul sends them a message saying, stop being rebellious, stop getting drunk, stop slandering each other, have some self-control. Self-control came up like four times there in, the, in, this, in just the chapter two. And don't neglect your home, don't neglect your kids, don't neglect your husband. Again, so busy solving all the problems of the world and, and, and the church, yet ignoring their own. See, when opinion, controversy, and talk become our idol, we become hypocrites. I'm sad to say it, but I think this is not too far off from the Church of North America today. 
I think many people can talk a big game about their faith, maybe even convince others about what they believe. But in their own lives, we see this. Their lives are a mess. There's some, it's, 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 it's just a, a sad truth. I mean, the type of hypocrisy that we're talking about is the one that's really influencing what happens a lot in our youth. I did youth ministry for a little while, and what I would often speak about when you could get a student to be really honest, and you ask them, why don't you believe, or what, what is really holding you back? And they would often say, you know, I'm just not sure this is all real because my mom and dad... You know, they say and do one thing on Sunday morning, but what I see at home is totally different. And, and even within apologetics, if you start talking about, with other people about why they do or do not believe in, in Christianity, often the topic of hypocrisy is, is involved. You know, what we do and how we behave, it can deny God by our works, it says. In verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. You see, and what's at stake here is not mostly our reputation. It's God's. It's his bride's. Lastly, on the list, it's our reputation. When I think of hypocrisy, I think of an illusionist, a magician, someone who's telling you to look over here. I wish I could do a magic trick for you this morning. I really can't. Um, but someone is saying, look over here, and they're trying to get your attention over here, and they look at it, and they, they tell you how important it is, but something else is going on right in front of your eyes that you're totally missing. Sorry if I just spoiled illusions for you. But that's how a hypocrite works. I like this quote. Actions prove who someone is. Words just prove who they pretend to be. So this morning, I want to share with you three solutions from God's word for hypocrisy in our lives and in the church. And this is important. It's important that we do this because you can pretend to know all the theology in the world and still not know God. You can demonstrate all sorts of acts of service that people are amazed by and it never truly costs you anything. You could be heard by the largest audience with the greatest influence and never care about them nor ever offer them anything of substance. This is what I see in North American hypocrisy. God's word has something to say about it for sure. So let's, let's see. So here's the first solution to hypocrisy in our lives and in the church. Know God personally. Know God personally. Not religiously, not philosophically, personally. John Piper writes about a hypocrite this way. He says, a hypocrite is a peculiar kind of liar. Hypocrisy is a peculiar kind of lying. A hypocrite is a person for whom lying has gone down into the personality. Hypocrites don't just tell lies. They are lies. A hypocrite is a horrifying spectacle. Truth has become utterly alien, swept away by deep, deep devotion to self-protection, self-preservation, and self-exaltation. Truth is not functional in the life of the hypocrite. It's not a governing category. It is gone. And this is terrifying, don't let this happen. For the hypocrite is afraid of truth, afraid of the light that would shine on their lives and what it would show. If you turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, verse five and six, this is what it says. 
This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. My question for you this morning is, are you afraid of the light? Is there something in your life? Is there something you don't want people to see? And I don't mean at an embarrassing level, right? We mean it at the level of, if it was brought to light, what you hide, would it be a judgment of your character? Would it be a demonstration of who you have made yourself to be and not who you were designed to be? Are you afraid of the truth today? If you're afraid of the truth, if you're afraid of the light, then my, my plea for you today is run to the Lord. Run to the cross. There's no greater comfort or healing for the liar than to run to the cross. For a hypocrite who is afraid of truth, they don't know how they could ever survive being exposed. But I can tell you, you can because only a close friend and ally could help us when we're in that depths of the depths of our own deception, the depths of our own lies. And there's only one friend who can truly know who we were meant to be and truly see who we've tried to make ourselves out to be. And that's Jesus. He knows what you were made for. He knows what the purpose in your life is. And he sees the muck that we've made of our own lives. And he looks at that and he says, I forgive you. He looks at that and he says, I love you. He looks at that and says, I will send my helper to enable you to get through this new exposure and this new life. You will enjoy the light, not run from it. For the hypocrite, there is nothing better than the cross. There's nothing more comforting than to know God personally. Right now, Becca and I are trying to train Parker to... uh, stay in his bed. <laughs> he won't stay in his bed. We put him down and, and, uh, and we're not quite at the point of ratchet strapping him down, but it's crossed my mind. Um, and he, uh, what happens is you put him to bed and he, it's all peaceful and calm. I love you, mommy. I love you, daddy. Good night, Parker. Good night, mommy. All these nice things. And then what, five minutes later, you can hear eh, sound of him getting out of the bed, the sound of the, the doorknob opening, the door creaking, little footsteps, and uh, instead of just yelling at him or anything like that, we kind of just wait. We just almost observe him and go like, what are you going to (laughs) do? And he comes into the living room, and often he just goes and he pretends like we're not there and starts playing. (laughs) But, uh, But there are times when he's come in and he's caught dad's eyes, and you just see the fear of dad in his eyes, right? And we're hoping that he would just say, I'm sorry, I'll go back to bed. (laughs) And uh, it it often reminds me of just the the grace I'm to show him is to remind me of the the grace that the father shows uh, to the prodigal son when he returns. That open arm say, come here, I'm just so glad to see you here. I know you have rebelled against me, but I'm so glad to have you here. Come to me. And, uh, and so we, we teach, we, we, we discipline our child and, and, and help him get back to bed and we go with him and, and there are tears for him, but we're with him through every one of those tears 
We put them back to bed. We sing them a song. We tell them we love them and that, you know, we're, we're excited for what we're doing the next day. See, this is, this is the kind of God we have, a much better version of a father than I am. He looks at you and the mess you've made of your life, and he sees you for who you were meant to be, and he says, I love you beyond this, the way you've made yourself. I forgive you. Now let me hold your hand through the process of, of doing things right. So for the hypocrite, the first thing is always to just know God personally. Because good theology should always drive you to worship God. Good theology, uh, which is what the, the people of Crete thought. If I know good theology, I will have this great relationship with the Lord. But there was obviously hypocrisy in their life. And the reality was that good theology should have driven them to have a closer relationship with the Lord. A better understanding of the cross. But often, good theology ends up leaving us in doctrine and the talk of controversy. All of these things leave us talking a lot about God and not to him. Good theology humbles you. If you are not driven to worship the Lord after you've learned something about him, you have not learned anything about him. This is why the 5G life, this practice that we have within our church, I don't know if it's displayed up here. Yeah, it is over there. And there's this time uh, that we share in the, the, the 5G life is a model for how the Christian uh, should live, how a Christ follower should live. And it says God time. God time is this important time that we spend every single day with the Lord. Time when no one else, there's no audience, no opinions around us, no one to impress, just privacy with the Lord. God time is so important. It's your opportunity to Remember the cross in the quietness of your life. To remind yourself that what you believe is what you have with the Lord. It is a personal relationship. It's not, uh, it's not a display you only put on when you're at small group or at church or when your kids are listening. It's yours first. Please practice the 5G life. The second uh, solution to hypocrisy is be a disciple. Be a disciple. There's a, a pastor from Singapore uh, who runs a ministry called the International Disciple Making Churches. It's a, it's a long acronym for him. But uh, his name is Edmund Chan, and I've read a few of his books, and, and he says this in one of them. He says, there are many converts, but few disciples. There are many converts, but few disciples. Many people choose to believe in, in the things about Jesus they will be convinced about it, but never come under the discipline of it. They will subscribe to Jesus, but they won't necessarily submit to him. A convert is someone who has turned their way, turned away from one direction and to another and converted to Christianity often. People who have become convinced of something. But a disciple, disciples are people who have become disciplined. So I, I, I ask you, are you a disciple? Look at, with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. This is what Paul says. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We know that the, the flesh is a source for temptation. We need to be under 
the discipline of the Lord, practicing the spiritual disciplines, prayer, meditation, reading God's word, fasting. You see, the people of Crete were just converts, it seems like. People convinced about God, convinced to talk about him, convinced to, to even express about God and Jesus Christ and the message to other people. But it hadn't come into their life at a level of discipline. It's interesting, as I read this passage, I figured um, that Titus was very similar to Timothy, but they're actually two very different guys, same with two very different purposes. Timothy was meant to go and practice the gift he was given uh, of preaching. Titus was there to uh, appoint elders or, or ordain elders, and then what he was meant to teach was this. He wasn't there to teach sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Don't teach just sound doctrine. Teach what goes with sound doctrine. What is the type of life that associates with sound doctrine? He put his money where his mouth was. (laughs) You see, a hypocrite will tell you what to do without testing it themselves. I was um, a bit of a rebellious teen. And uh, some of the times that we would go out, I can remember going out with my buddies and I had the gift of gab. And I could convince them to do things that I shouldn't have convinced them to do. (laughs) Silly things like climbing silos that were abandoned and um, pulling off light bulbs at the top light bulb on somebody's Christmas lights and horrible things to do. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I was able to convince them to do it. I would say, oh, it's completely safe. It's going to be totally fine. You're not going to have any trouble, all this kind of stuff. And I would say all that. And then I'd be like, now you go do it. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to be the first one. I, I, was, I was convinced that it was going to be okay, and I was convinced it wasn't a big deal. But I would ask them to do it. You see, I, I think the first people that should test out roller coasters are the ones who designed them. <laughs> right? I think it'd be horrible if I go and I'm like, oh, Becca, I just changed the brakes on the car I, for the first time ever. Test it out, sweetheart. <laughs> right? But this is what the hypocrite does. They talk about how great God is, maybe. They talk about how to solve your problems. But they've never put it into practice in their own lives. Prove yourself to yourself. The example we're given in Christ is that Christ is no hypocrite. There's something really, really important about the the doctrine of of Oh my goodness. Incarnation. Thank you. (laughs) No one helped me, but thank you. (laughs) Well, the Lord helped me. Amen. Um, The doctrine of incarnation is this, uh, the reality that Christ, the the second person of the Trinity comes into flesh, 100% man, 100% God. This is incredibly important in this case, in the talk of hypocrisy, because I don't know if you've recognized this, but there's a lot of religions, a lot of beliefs out there that believe in a form of divine justice. And they believe about divine justice, that God is judging and that there's maybe karma and there's good ways of the evil, bad and and all this kind of stuff. But Christianity is unique in this and that our God is not a distant God. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He comes down and he says, I want to experience the pain my people experience. I will experience the temptation they experience. I will know what it's like to pray to the Father and and call on him. I will use scripture to fight temptation, all to teach and train us. Christ is no hypocrite. 
He went through every temptation that we go through. And, and, and I mean, just this passage, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it talks about this. For the grace of God has appeared. Christ appeared. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God decided to be amongst us to prove that he is no hypocrite and neither shall we be. I think I have time to just quickly compare the passage we're looking at to the Great Commission. When we're talking about being a disciple, this is such an important passage for us to go to. If you would go to Matthew chapter 28, verse uh, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So when we are told to go and make disciples, we are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Comparing that to our passage today, we have to understand that what baptism is, is baptism is obedience it's obeying what, you've been, what Jesus has said. If you don't understand what baptism is, I'm going to give a short understanding. Baptism is obeying Christ's command to be baptized. And it's identifying with him. Identifying with him. That's what the, the immersion experience is, is to identify with Christ in the burial and to identify with Christ in the resurrection. Please, if you're ready to obey and identify with Christ, get baptized. Come speak to Meldon or myself or Chrissy or any one of the elders. We want to see people baptized to identify themselves with Christ. And that's what the people of Crete had said. They professed to know God. They identified with him. That, that no is not, is not like, oh, I know of him. But a no as in like, I personally know God. I am, I am family with God. That's what that means in Titus chapter 1 verse 16. But that's not the end of the Great Commission, is it? It keeps going. Yes, identify with him. Obey him. And then it says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It doesn't say teaching them all I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Such an important word in there. We are not to just tell people what to believe. We are to show them what accords with sound doctrine. The other translations use obey, uh, sorry, obey or, or keep the commandments of God. When we look at Psalm 119, he delights in obeying the law of the Lord. Obeying the law of the Lord. Disciples are to obey. They professed to know God, but they denied him by their works. They were detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. The last thing to do to, to kill hypocrisy in our lives and in the church is make disciples. Make disciples. You are not obeying the Lord if you are not making disciples. Discipling. I, I, I mean, I love the, the role I get to play. Discipling is the making and maturing of disciples. Making meaning evangelizing, telling people who have not heard or who do not believe in Christ and to share the gospel with them and watch, and watch them respond. Um, maturing, the iron sharpens iron. The spurring each other to love and good works. The making and maturing of disciples. And when I, when I read this passage and I looked at the activity, the, the drunkenness, the lack of self-control, the, the, the way that they were neglecting their homes, their families, their marriages, I asked myself, like, what kind of community of church was this? 
This was a church that spent a lot of time, a lot of time together debating and discussing and giving their opinions and talking about genealogies and histories and having a good time doing it. Yet, they were living without self-control. They were getting drunk. They had broken marriages and homes. What kind of relationships were existing in this church? How could they not be close enough? How were they not caring for each other in these areas of their lives? But it's still happening today, isn't it? And if it's still happening today, I have to ask myself, how many, in the, how many people in the church trust me and do I trust? Ask yourself that question. How many people in the church trust you and do you trust? Sadly, it's probably a smaller number than you would hope it would be within the church. And it's because like magicians, like illusionists, we have decided that it's okay for us to all pay attention over here, but hide something going on in our lives. We're not really willing to necessarily talk about financial troubles, marital troubles. How many times in the church do I, I, I've seen people walk into the pastor's office and just say, um, help us get through this divorce. And he goes, what? When, were, when did you start? When were the marital issues starting? When, when did this all happen? Oh, this, was, this has been for 15 years. We've never said or done anything about it. Help me deal with the fact that I've put my family in bankruptcy and uh, now we have to find a new home and all this kind of stuff. What? When was this financial trouble happening? Oh, we've been dealing with this for a long time. Why didn't you say anything? In North America, we... We have, a, we have a bit of a, a culture issue going on here, I would say. A few years ago, we had someone visit from a, a, an Eastern culture, come and teach at our church at, back in Oshawa. And, uh, and during one of the leadership sessions, somebody asked him, what is one of the things inhibiting discipleship within North America? What is one of the major things? And he said it was the depth of the relationships that people share in, in, in Canada and, and in the States. He said that people are shallow, that similarly, they've decided that there are certain areas of their lives that they will share almost too much information. I mean, how many photos of our meals do we really need to see of each other's, right? When there's so much other stuff going on. And he, he, he gave the example and he said, you should ask yourself this question. And this is stuck in my head. You should ask yourself this question. The people who are discipling you and the people you are discipling, do you know if they snore? Do you know if they snore? And he meant it. Because he would go up with a bunch of grown men, businessmen of great stature and influence over the culture he was in, and they would sleep in one room together. The disciples knew if Jesus snored or not. Jesus knew what was on their feet when he cleaned them. If you know God, you would know God's heart for people. And, you would, and if you profess to know him, then you, in your works, you will go and desire to be with people to make disciples. You see, a hypocrite tries to point people the right way. A disciple maker models the right way. A hypocrite <clears throat> has something to offer everyone. A disciple maker has something to share with people. Let's just quickly look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 to 5, one of the most um, popular passages for hypocrisy. It says this, Judge not that you will not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So 
Be careful with the severity that you use against someone else because that severity will be used on you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in yours? Okay, if I came up here with a two by four, and I was like, hey, just so you know, I see something, I think there's something in your eye. Ridiculous. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. That's the end of the passage? No. It continues. First take the log out of your eye. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We don't just kill sin in our lives. We don't just repent and turn from sin in our lives just so that we can feel good about ourselves and walk away with a little happy relationship with the Lord. We go through trial and temptation and we kill sin in our lives and we repent and we experience what it's like to pull a log out of our eye because God has designed you to go and help others, to train you up, to not be a hypocrite, but to go through that experience so that you can go and make disciples, showing someone, I know what it's like to kill sin in your life. I know what it's like to, to repent. I know what it's like, how embarrassing it is to pull the log out of your eye. I want to be with you and help you pull the speck out of yours. You see, group time is not a smaller version of a sermon. It's where you put a face and a name to the question of who is discipling you and who are you discipling. Maybe you can't be in a group and that's okay. But I, this is my question for the church. Who, who is discipling you? Are you being discipled? Who is helping maturing you in your faith? Or helping you understand what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ? And then in turn, who are you discipling? Moms and dads, the first people you are discipling are your kids and your marriages. The church would grow incredibly, if we could just kill the hypocrisy within the families. How are you fighting and fleeing the temptation of hypocrisy? That's the question for us this morning. How are you fighting and fleeing the temptation of hypocrisy? We should be together walking rather than forever talking. You see, our North American society is the perfect environment for making hypocritical Christians, and we see it all around us. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you afraid of the truth? Are you afraid of being exposed? Run to him. Experience his forgiveness. Are you a disciple or are you just a convert? And who are you discipling? Let's spend less time talking about foolish controversies and opinions. Let's not make that the idol of our lives, but let's enjoy the community that God has given us, making disciples and enjoying the, the freedom of living and walking in the light. Let me pray. Lord, help us. In many ways, Lord, we, we know that in, in, in some way we're all a hypocrite. And we have to come to your cross, experience your grace, repent of our sins 
turn to you. Enjoy the light of your love. Lead us in our, in our daily walk. Help us to honor you. We want to lift your name high. In your name we pray. Amen.